This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein. Here at Hoover, we know him as the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow. He's a Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law over at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, today is Friday, October 28th, which means we have about a week and a half until the November 8th midterm elections. And things are not looking good for the Democratic Party. It seems like maybe Republicans, well, it seems likely the Republicans will take the House and the Senate seems to be a toss up. And I'd like to know from you, what do you think is driving this switch? Is it just the normal, a new president takes, uh, takes control from the other party, overreacts a little bit and, uh, and the opposition party wins and, and then we're you know, due for gridlock for a while? Or is there something actually new going on? Well, no, I think it's probably a more extreme movement and it may even signal some kind of a permanent realignment of the way the forces in the United States are arrayed independent of this particular election. I mean, let's start the way in which the campaign has been run on both sides. Uh, the Democrats essentially say that Donald Trump is still in office. Everything that happened on January 6, 2021 is very much in the minds of everyone today. Democracy is still under threat by that. Um, that abortion is the number one issue of the time, and that what we have to do is to make sure that the Congress secures the rights that were once granted to individual women under Roe v. Wade. Uh, this is Christmas past, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's not that people don't care about January 6th, uh, but there are at least some people give a different spin to it, so it's not as unilateral as the uh, Democrats want to make it out. With respect to Roe v. Wade, if you take major liberal states, they've already basically enacted legislation consistent with Dobbs, which basically returns you to the status of what it was prior to the decision being overruled, but only by democratic processes, which even if they're less fancy than constitutional ones, also turn out in many cases to be more durable. That is, you've got a political consensus, you're not going to overturn it. Uh, so I think what they're doing is they're pushing on the poor buttons. At the same time, there are the large social issues that take place, of which it's quite clear that the inflation is number one, along with such things as energy prices and so on. And the question is, how do you think about those? The Democrats have a very clear line on this, which is articulated by Joe Biden most recently yesterday, in which he says, woe is unto us. It is a combination of bad luck and Mr. Vladimir Putin that accounts for all of our ills and that I am trying very hard as your president in this administration to counteract everything that he's trying to do. Uh, so what he's doing is he's basically saying he is a helpless little boat in the middle of a storm. Uh, the Republicans have a very different story. First of all, they don't say anything much about uh, uh, the Dobbs decision. They don't say very much about the January 6th commission. They understand that people are looking forward and that the inflation and the energy issues and the crime issue, to add a third, are very much what's uppermost on their mind. But what their key element is to say, uh, Joseph Biden is not a disinterested spectator to what it was that the Kremlin has done in order to create this situation. The United States has huge amounts of energy uh, at its disposal, and what it has decided to do is to keep it under lock and key. They are joined in this bit of what I regard as misguided public policy by the major energy-consuming nations in Europe, including Great Britain, France, Germany, Holland, and so forth, all of whom have even more stringent anti-fracking uh, policies than we do. Uh, if you opened up those particular spigots, anything that would happen with the Russians would be utterly irrelevant because you could replace double more so if you had these things turning at full bore. I think people in this country kind of understand all of that. 
They also understand that uh, President Biden shut down the Keystone Pipeline the day he took office, and that every other pipeline that you're trying to build gets tied up in legal red tape. Uh, so it simply does not wash. Then just to make it worse, he's irresponsible. Instead of unleashing productive forces, he decides to raid the cupboard. That is to take oil and gas out of strategic reserves and use it to solve short-term problems. Uh, for one thing, it means you have to replenish the reserves. Uh, but once these things are spent, the price will go right back up again. So you're going to have to pay a hell of a lot more to put oil and gas back into the reserves uh, than it costs you to keep them originally. And that's going to drive the deficit. It's also that on the inflation side, uh, there was no tomorrow. The Democrats were behind every spending program, and they got most of it through or enough of it through. It would have been a lot worse if the Republicans hadn't been able to work some kind of a compromise. And I think everybody kind of knows that that's also the situation. And so it turns out that they've handed the Republicans two very strong issues. And these are both global issues in the sense that every state in the union is impacted by them. And so uh, the key thing to understand is their variations that take place within states. But the general trend line will be uh, basically determined by these issues. And it's tending more Republican every day. Why is that? Because the recent numbers have only confirmed that uh, this inflation is not a transitory situation. The gas pipe situation is very bad. Uh, the danger of blackouts in New England and a bunch of other places in the United States seems to be real. And so it turns out I don't think he has any place to hide. To make it worse, um, some of the people in the various states, like the governors of Gavin Newsom in California, and to some extent what's happening in New York, is they double down on the kinds of policies at the state level, which are absolutely disastrous. And it's very hard to credit this party as having enough rational sensibility at the national level if all the statewide things go in the wrong direction. And so I think, in effect, it's clearly a trend line. Individual places, it's always harder to tell. What's already in the news is that the Republicans are sort of trying to spend money to win places they never thought they had a chance. And the Democrats are spending money to keep seats that they never thought would ever be in play. Places like Rhode Island and now places like New York are in play. And New York, in many ways, is the most interesting of these things. A couple of days ago, people thought that this was kind of a tie, which itself was incredible. I gather in Michigan, it's kind of close, although not quite a tie. And the real issue is going to be whether the trend line is going to be overcoming the ability of the defend of the Democrats, particularly with their union base, to turn out the votes in order to stem the tide. Uh, they were relatively inactive until now, but now they're moving in high gear. Uh, so the question is whether that particular pressure is going to be strong enough to overcome the general trend line. And you know, my inclination is it's going to be somewhere in the middle. They'll win some of these states, but not others. But overall, I think it's likely that the Republicans will have the House probably by 30 or 40 seats. Pretty substantial majority. I think it's more likely than not that the Republicans will take the Senate, but I think it's most likely to be by 51 or 52 votes. Uh, on other days, I get a little bit more giddy or foolish and start to say it can go up to 45, 55, or 56. Uh, that depends on individual features. Very hard for somebody like me to make the trend out of this thing. Uh, but I do think, in effect, you're going to see the realignment. And the last general point I will make is not only is it with respect to these short term issues. It seems pretty clear to me uh, that the very strong Democratic hold on the Hispanic and the Black votes is beginning to loosen a little bit, um, and that these populations don't see anything in this for them. If they thought back to the Trump administration and figured out what happened to their wallet, it went a lot better uh, than it's doing under the Biden administration. And people who are in financial distress have long enough memories to realize that they'd rather talk to the party that doesn't talk a big game but performs better than the party that talks a very, very big game, but doesn't perform at all.
you mentioned that there are a number of close races. It's not just in the House or the Senate. There are also governorships that are um, look like they'll come down to the wire. Richard, how worried are you that we may see some election denial in terms of close 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 uh, elections or or just losses? Um, what would you what would you say to candidates who, you know, I, that, that seems to me maybe the playbook um, or a preview for again twenty twenty four something that's I guess been normalized since the last election. Well, look, my view about this is pretty clear, and it applies to both parties, is that an essential virtue in all elections is that there has to be finality, which can only be achieved if you take the standard processes and run them promptly, but never sort of improvise either by judicial or legislative imagination to introduce additional steps into the thing that makes things even muddier. And so my view about Donald Trump back in Georgia was that he can scream all he wanted, but the moment those votes were done, all his screaming was supposed to do was to say, I really want to have an investigation about this, not because I want to change the outcome in the election, but because I want to understand what we should do to change electoral practices going forward. And on such things as having drop-off ballots and late mail deadlines and various kinds of authentications of uh, people voting records and so forth. I think those are all fair game. And I think we talked about past amendments, but it should be understood they're off table. This will also applies to people like Stacey Abrams, who's still trying to re relitigate the 2018 election to no avail. And I think it's equally foolish on her part to try that. And I think it's going to cost them. My guess is that she will lose by a much larger margin in Georgia this time around and will be denied the hope that she had of becoming governor. So uh, the principle of finality is what dominates uh, this in the way. And you have to apply it in a rigorous bipartisan fashion. The other thing you have to do with respect to all these elections is you have to make the rules of eligibility perfectly clear and relatively simple so that you know who's in and who's out. And I do not like fancy type of situations where the chain of control with respect to ballots is in any way going to be compromised by handing them off to third parties, by putting them in various kinds of drop boxes and so forth. And so it has to be a very tight election. I'm also, by the way, not a particular enthusiast with respect to early voting. Um, I think maybe in the last two weeks, it's okay for people with cause, but the danger is that people will vote and then major things will change afterwards, like what happened in Pennsylvania. And this could lead people who cast their original vote to change their mind. And I don't like to see these things set into concrete. So I think there are a number of things that could be done generally in order to overall improve the process. Do I think we're likely to see these complaints? I think the answer is yes, we will see them, but I think they're less likely to draw traction now after all the fuss that went on the other ways. The Democrats and the Republicans will both be very self-conscious about trying to do this for fear that in the effort to salvage a lost election, they may well compromise their position uh, in electoral politics for the next election and perhaps even beyond that. Well, Richard, I want to change gears a little bit because I think we'd be remiss not to mention that yesterday, Elon Musk took full ownership of Twitter. And the questions on everyone's mind are, who is going to be unbanned? And I suppose, what will content moderation look like on the platform? Now, Elon said, you know, this is, we're, we're freeing the platform. However, he's run into issues with the staff, issues with advertisers. And right before we started recording this, he actually announced that a content moderation council would be, uh, would be convened and no major content decisions or reinstatements of accounts would happen um, before, before that group meets. And I guess, you know, the question on everyone's mind is, is Donald Trump going to come back? Will he allowed back on? And if I suppose he announces his presidency or his candidacy for president and he's not allowed back on, 
is Twitter going to run into some problem there as a as a platform for uh, for for content? I mean, you have to talk me through this a little bit of maybe what you expect to well, see. Well, I mean, first give me forty billion dollars, and then I'll give you my opinion. Forty-four. What, what's where's the left? Or whatever it is. I mean, I don't have the dough, but I mean, well, the first point to note is it's clear there are going to be some changes. I think that uh, Musk has already fired the chief executive and the chief financial officer of the Twitter organization. And that means that clearly some change in direction is going to come. Uh, but what I think he's also going to realize if he hadn't realized it already is that you are very heavily dependent upon your contributors and upon your readership and upon your advertisers. And if you bolt too far in a way that leaves all of them uncomfortable, you could become in the Twitter world, the next Liz Trust. That is somebody who's out of business in 47 days. <laughs> so I, I think he's going to be a bit more careful. And what you talk about with respect to this council is an effort to put something between him and the particular decision that he could point to in order to legitimate the outcome. You'll recall that Facebook had done exactly the same thing when they had their own content board in the middle, uh, which was given real kinds of powers and may have had some good. Um, I think in the end, these are bulky bodies uh, that in a while they may insulate you, but sooner or later, you're gonna have to make some very hard questions. I don't think you could leave it to an intermediate board to decide whether or not Donald Trump does or does not come back. Uh, my own view about that is I think they should allow him back under these circumstances. And I don't think he's gonna run for president, not that I have any information about this, but just a gut guess is that he's not gonna do it. But if he did decide to run for president, I think what you do is you give him a fairly free reign. Otherwise, it's going to be an impossible asymmetry if the Democratic candidate gets full access and the Republican candidate is barred because he's unreliable, which is another way of making a statement, don't trust Donald Trump, vote Democratic. And I don't think that Musk wants to be put into that position. So I think he's going to be perforced to come there. What happens is he starts to say genuinely stupid things. Uh, you can always write response to him on the bottom of the account so that everybody could read them. Or you might be able to occasionally remove one of these tweets that seems to be particularly offensive, even though you leave the account open. But I don't believe, in effect, <clears throat> that he's going to be able to exclude, not only because of his general promises, but because of the political type of, of situation. There are thousands of other things that you have to worry about. I mean, global warming and COVID are two areas in which all sorts of people, myself included, are generally regarded as unreliable sources, uh, not to be seen in polite places. And so you got to lift us off and throw us away. I, I find this absolutely silly. And so this is what I would tell Donald Trump, is I'm saying, you are not bound by the First Amendment, we will assume, but you have to think like somebody who is bound by the First Amendment. And this means, first of all, that if you're going to make decisions about what does and does not stay on, you can't be a partisan in the debate. If you're going to be a moderator, you have to do that and only that. You have to silence your own political preferences in order to get any kind of credibility whatsoever in the general issues. Then the question is, what sort of things can you start to go after? And in my mind, uh, the things that are lumped together under the Community Decency Act don't belong together. So if it's a question of getting obscenity off of the network or pornography off of the network or, or, or ugly language, racial taunts of one kind or another, uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, you would bar under normal circumstances. You can do it here, knowing that at the margin, there are going to be some particular cases that might give you a certain degree of anxiety. But on the other hand, that's not what just is limited to Twitter or to YouTube or any of these guys. What we do is we have debates in which the question is, do we believe in the government orthodoxy? And the central tenet of the First Amendment is that if the government is in power, 
Criticism by way of speech is the single most important way in which we can moderate its excesses. So for Twitter or for YouTube to take sides on a particular issue, well, we don't believe that uh, this virus arose in some laboratory in Wuhan, or we really do believe that the vaccine is effective or ineffective, as the case may be, is just asking for trouble. These issues are highly fluid. There's a lot of difference of opinion on them. To say that the eminent people who wrote the Barrington, Great Barrington Declaration are, are cranks and so forth and should be kept for is indefensible in my view. And so whether or not you do have the I'm a private platform defense, we'll have to yield that because of coordination problems with the government or something else is beside the point. Mr. Mosk is serious about all of this stuff. He's going to shut down the Politburo, the Disinformation Bureau, right away and let those kinds of debates flourish and make it very clear that if you put up something like that, somebody wants to answer in the bottom on your column, you can't wipe them off and it goes to the other side. So I don't think it's particularly hard to get the right line. I just think what you do is you get rid of the disinformation, misinformation category, uh, which is the source of 98% of the controversy. And it's probably something which can be eliminated without upsetting the internal integrity of the rest of the system. So I think if he sees his way through the bottom of that, uh, he could come out smelling pretty well. It also, by the way, as far as I'm concerned, means that people like myself who have often championed the common carrier model, that is the model which says these guys should be regulated to have non-discriminatory content because they're so big that there's no other feasible alternative to reading the public. If he turns out to be in, in reddish hands and everybody else is in bluish hands, that means that you have less of a single-minded view in that market. And I'd be much less willing to regulate the, the blue people if I think that the red people have a shot. Right now, there's Parler, but I gather it has about 16 million people on it, whereas the, the other networks are in the hundreds of millions or more than that. So I don't regard it as a viable contender to this, but I would much rather have Twitter being a vibrant kind of center-right organization and the left being able to do what it wants uh, than to have a situation where everybody seems to think that uh, only the support of Joe Biden and the attack of certain people on the other side is legitimate, uh, call the shots, at which point I become very uncomfortable with the way in which they go. But I don't know Elon Musk. I don't know whom he listens to. I don't even know how sort of media savvy he is. He says some things which I think are quite silly and some things I think are quite smart. He's a newbie in this particular business, but he's a newbie with an inordinate amount of information. So I think he should be pummeled a little bit on every side. And I hope if he follows the line that I mentioned, that will create on his own network a whole variety of smaller institutions that take positions on both sides of these kinds of issues consistent with what I think the Fourth the First Amendment requires. You know, Richard, last thing for you here. In two years, we're going to have the 2024 election. And I'm looking back at, I maybe say, 2012, when uh, uh, Facebook really played a huge role, I think, <laughs> in, in, in um, well, in helping uh, President Obama get elected then. And, uh, you know, Zuckerberg has taken some heat for, for many, many years for being maybe a kingmaker in politics. However, Meta, uh, you know, Facebook's uh, uh, wider company is down, I don't know, 60, 70% this year in, in market share. Well, they basically, they missed, the, they missed the mark. They missed the mark. But now we've got Twitter, which many people believe maybe Elon Musk, you know, bought for $20 billion too much money or so. Yeah, I think that, do, you, do you think we're going to be, Elon Musk is going to be the new boogeyman of, of elections in, in, in America in two years? No, I don't think he will because I don't think he'll be powerful enough to exert that kind of change. I mean, you know, just go back to 2000 and everybody realized that the uh, whatever it was, AOL, American Online, took over this small company, Time Warner. Mm -hmm. And it was quite clear that it, given its control over the Internet wires, it was basically going to bust everything up. 
and this was by 2010. Uh, AOL was a useless hope because they missed the market on non-paid platform. Uh, Time Warner had found its legs. So when they separated all the value was in the company that was thought to be the acquired company, the afterthought, not the dominant player. Well, I mean, Facebook's been around now for you know, 20 years or so. It's grown mightily. Uh, clearly, they missed the market. I have done an authoritative market research. Did you know that? I, I was not aware. Well, I will tell you what the research is. I regarded a 98% thing. I took my granddaughter, Bella Pianco, who's mm -hmm. 15 and a half years old. And I said, why do you stay on TikTok and not um, uh, on Facebook? And she says, dad, grandpa, Facebook's for your generation. TikTok's for mine. <laughs> uh, now, I, you know, I assume that she is speaking for an entire generation mm -hmm. so that this poll of one is completely authoritative and accurate. And the confirmation is that if you start looking at where the people are going and where the dollars are going, it's clear that people are shedding the Facebook image and the dollars are following them somewhere else. And I think this is always going to be the kind of situation. I mean, I could not remain in academic work if I still did all my work on my 1955 Royal typewriter. Um, it was very good for the time, but the keys tended to jam. Uh, you've got to constantly move forward. And I think that's going to happen to these. I have no doubt in my mind that what, what, what uh, Musk did was to overpay for something that wasn't worth that kind of money. Um, because I thought the trajectory was perfectly clear that this would happen. And of course, and they're missing the market in favor of what? I said, this is where the market is smart. I don't have to tell you who's going to do you in. I just have to say that in the history of thought, there's always been somebody out there who becomes the next generation and they do you in. And then a generation later, somebody starts to do them in. And so that's why we don't have a world which is dominated today by the American Telegraph and Telegram Company, right? Things have changed a little bit. And even though we have AT&T, it's a different company. You have Microsoft, it's a very different company. The companies that survive, they survive because they have internal transformation. And Zuckerberg realized that and he tried to do it. And nobody knows what the metaverse is supposed to be about. And when you can't figure out what the target is of a new company, nobody's going to sign on for a wild ride adventure that doesn't lead to a secure uh, port. Um, things that take off, take off like TikTok, they take off quickly. And if you're struggling, what they're seeing is two things in the best. One is that you failed already. And two, a prediction that you're going to fail even worse in the years to come ahead. Uh, that can happen to anybody. And so nothing is constant except for the change, right? It is one of these maxims that you like. And the other one, remember what Heraclitus said? You cannot put your toe into a river even twice because it's always changing, right? And that level of transformation comes back to hurt these people. This should have real significance in the way in which you evaluate the, the sort of antitrust tool, break up the Yankees, break up Twitter, break up that. Uh, my friend Jonathan Barnett at USC wrote a very nice column saying, uh, you're talking about these guys being indomitable on the one hand, I'm showing you the crash in market value on the other. Uh, uh, the last thing you want to do is to take companies that are having difficulties and then push them into bankruptcy by an ill-advised um, antitrust suit against them, which is what the American left is thinking about, because their views of the, the general market are antediluvian. What I mean by that is they still think things are just as they were in 2018, and they're not, and they never will be again. Um, so, you know, as I'm sitting here, having gone through many cycles of this kind of game, I, I realize that the uh, pretension that my empire will last a thousand years or whatever the appropriate period is, is per se wrong. And it's just because the basic underlying tendency, it is not a particular analysis of this person, this company, this day. And general tendencies like that will control over the long run. So I, I think, you know, I wish Mr. Musk well in his new venture. 
I think it's going to be a lot harder than he thought, but I certainly don't believe that he has a stranglehold. And indeed, by 2024, it's not even clear where the locus of media power will lie. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published over at definingideas at hoover.org. If you found our conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Talk to you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.